Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Welcome back to Frictionless Marketing. Josh Ernest is the Senior Vice President and Chief Communications Officer for United Airlines, a position he's held since 2018. In the past, Josh served as the 29th White House Press Secretary under President Barack Obama, an experience which was extremely formidable for his approach to communications. He also serves on the Board of Advisors of Let America Vote, an organization founded by Missouri Secretary of State Jason Kander that aims to end voter suppression. In this discussion with Lippy Taylor Group CEO Paul Dyer, Josh gets into everything from DEI, finding opportunity in a crisis, keeping your cool under extreme pressure, and of course, lessons learned from his time with Obama. Without further ado, here is United Airlines CCO Josh Ernest in conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer. Hi, welcome back. This is Paul Dyer from Lippy Taylor, and I am joined here today by Josh Ernest. Josh, uh, nice to be speaking with you. Yeah, good to see you, Paul. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well, thank you. And I'm realizing that the people who are listening right now can't see what's on the shelf behind you like I can. So why don't we start there, which is I see a picture of what looks like probably you and your family with Barack Obama. Is that right? <laughs> that is actually there. That's a that's a, a picture of shortly after my son was born um, in 2014. Um, I was I I was the newly minted White House press secretary at the time, um, and uh, President Obama, who I'd worked with during the campaign and and throughout his tenure in the White House, um, was very interested to uh, see my child once he was born. So uh, we got a chance to to take him in to say hi. I mean, what an experience. And, um, you know, this, I'm, I'm very curious, you know, how did this background working as a press secretary in the Obama administration and maybe your, your broader background in politics, how do you feel like that maybe prepared you for the work you do today at United? Yeah, listen, I, you know, when I was working in government and sort of thinking about the next stage in my career, there were some um, there, I had to make an argument in my own mind for uh, how I would have conversations with people in the private sector and in the corporate world about how my experience in government uh, could translate um, to bringing something to the table in the in the corporate world. And look, the, the truth is that when I was having those kinds of conversations after I'd left the White House and sort of thinking about the next stage in my career, there were some business leaders who were much more open to that than others. There were definitely conversations where I would have, um, you know, a really nice cup of coffee or a conversation in a uh, in a boardroom with uh, executives talking about my experience, talking about the challenges facing their company, and it'd be, it'd be a very pleasant conversation, thought provoking, interesting. But it there were times where it was clear that we were walking away from that conversation, and the the other person was thinking, but you know, he seems like a pretty smart guy with an interesting background, but what's he going to do to help me with my business? And it, it, it made clear to me that I needed to find the right kind of opportunity for me in my career, um, that I needed to find, I needed to find a conversation with uh, a business executive who would um, think to themselves, I've got a whole bunch of people who work for me who are experts in my industry. What I need is somebody who has had the experience of the rough and tumble of 
public relations uh, and dealing with the media and trying to drive a public argument about what you stand for, about what we believe in, about and inspire people to, to join. Um, and that is very much what my experience in government was about. Um, my experience in government was definitely about trying to educate and inform the American public, and in some cases the world, about what President Obama was thinking and doing and why those things were priorities and why uh, we had some confidence that what we were trying to do just might work. Um, turns out those are the same kinds of questions that people have uh, for companies like airlines. And you know, United was at a very challenging um, uh, point in its history when I joined. Uh, it had been through a couple of very public, um, I, don't know, I don't know if I would describe them as scandals, as much as I would say they were controversies um, and raised public doubts um, about the um, leadership of the, of the company. Fair or not, that was just how it played. And, um, you know, I had lots of really interesting conversations with executives at United. And I you know, remember one conversation I had with, with Oscar Munoz, who's the CEO at the time, a really thoughtful guy and somebody who spent a lot of time sort of thinking about how to rebuild um, confidence in organizations. And I think, you know, he, he um, made tremendous progress uh, in his time at United in doing that. But I remember vividly the last conversation I, I had with him. I, you know, I, I, I did a second uh, interview with him sort of when we were to the final round. Um, and he and he looked at me and, and he said, um, you know, Josh, why are you interested in this job? And I said, you know, we've been talking, you know, for the, you know, over the course of a couple of different meetings, you know, for two and a half hours about about this. And I said at the end, you know, there are lots of reasons. But I think at the end of the day, the reason I want this job is because I think I can help. Mm -hmm. uh, and. You know, I, I said, you know, Oscar, you've got tens of thousands of people who spent their career in the airline industry who know really well how to run um, a really good airline. But I bring some background in um, helping you uh, and this company communicate to the public about why the th things that you're doing just might work to make this better airline. Um, and it, it created um, uh, a, an opening for me here at United that's worked out beautifully because it has allowed me to come in, even though I don't have the kind of decades of experience that others do in the airline industry, but Oscar um, and his successor, Scott Kirby, who's now our CEO, have been very willing to give me a seat at the table uh, and to give me an opportunity to try to help influence the decisions that we're making every day um, to help United fulfill its incredible potential. So can I, can I ask you to just clarify that for our listeners, which is, you know, Oftentimes, in particular, when you're 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 talking at the sort of the highest levels of corporate communications, and you know you're at the Arthur Page Summit and places like that, this is what it comes back to: is people talking about having a seat at the table, right, for communications. Yeah. What does that look like, and and what would be the alternative to having a seat at the table? Like, can you just like what does it what does it mean when you say I have a seat at the table, and that that matters in terms of how effective I am in my job? Yeah. I think at least for me, it's mattered in um, a couple of different ways. One is, you know, from the first day, um, I had, uh, you know, sort of an open line of communication with the CEO. Um, and that was really important. I didn't report directly to the CEO. Um, I reported to uh, the person that is now the president of the company. Uh, but he's somebody who has a lot of influence and ended up being a really good ambassador for me. Brett Hart is our president. And he was somebody who helped, who, who sort of cleared the way 
for me um, and helped me uh, get my footing here um, at the at the airline and to get to know the personalities, to understand uh, the context in which some of the conversations were happening. So, you know, having that line of communication to the CEO, but having that sort of a uh, an ambassador to sort of lead the way for me was really important. But the other thing that um, also became really important is after being at the uh, at the company for a little over a year, uh, I joined the executive team. Uh, and that what that did was that put me literally a seat at the table when uh, the leaders of the company are getting together talking about the important decisions that we need to make. And being uh, uh, around uh, for those decisions at the front end um, and certainly being able to shape those decisions a little bit, but also once those decisions are made, understanding how those decisions were made are essential to effectively making a case to the public about why those decisions were made. Um, and ultimately, I think that has been a really important part of the success that we've had over the last couple of years, talking about um, what United has done, it's including through the worst crisis that we've ever faced in our 95 year history. So let's talk about that for a minute, because <laughs> I have to say there, there's a headline and I'm sure you know which headline I'm talking about from PR Week that has got to be the most sort of career-affirming headline I have ever seen for somebody in this industry. PR Week's headline says, How Josh Ernest Has United Airlines Back on Solid Ground. So can you tell us what did you do, right? How did you get United Airlines back on solid ground? And, and what did you learn in the process? Yeah. I, the first thing that I thought, there are two things that came to mind when I first read that headline. The first was that uh, the headline writer was giving me way too much credit, um, but I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> of course, the, it's great. <laughs> the, uh, the second is that there definitely was a, a bit of a mixed metaphor situation because in the airline business, we're trying to get things off the ground uh, <laughs> on, on solid ground. Um, but that was the other first thing that came to mind. Um but listen, the um, I mean, I, the thing that is undeniably true, um, and this is why my first instinct was that, um, that I was getting way too much credit, is if you take a look at the profound changes that um, United Airlines has undergone, um, even through the crisis of the last couple of years, but you know, going back a little further than that, um, it, it is clear that there's an incredible story to tell about what's happening here. Um, and... You know, I uh, I would not have had anywhere near the success that I have enjoyed at United if we didn't actually have a good story to tell. There's no amount of spinning or sloganeering or creative marketing, um, particularly in a business like ours, where so many people have um, a very intimate personal experience with the brand. People are vulnerable when they are traveling. Um, they are, you know, they are sitting on that plane. And and they are at uh, sort of at um, they are counting on us to get them where they're going, to do it safely, to do it on time, um, to get their bags there and to make it as comfortable as possible. And if any of that goes wrong, there's not really that much that an individual passenger can do about it. Um, and so people do feel uh, vulnerable when they're traveling with us, which is why we take such great responsibility um, for, um, for taking care of them. And so the point is, there's no amount of 
spinning or sloganeering or creative marketing that would change people's minds if we weren't getting all that stuff right, or at least doing much better um, and more creatively solving the problems that invariably come up in such a complicated, logistically complicated operation. Yep. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is there was very much a willingness on the part of United Airlines because of the challenges uh, and controversies that they'd had to soldier through before. There was very much a willingness to try things differently. Um, and again, that's what made them so open to somebody that um, had never worked in the airline business before. Um, and let's be frank, I'd, I'd never had a corporate job before. <laughs> um, so, you know, I came in with a very different perspective and there was a very, there was very much a willingness on the part of the leadership of this company to sit back and say, we should try something different. Um, what we've been, what we've been doing before just hasn't gotten us the results that we're looking for. And so a willingness to try some different things has, uh, you know, has really paid off. And so it, it has meant that the, the approach that I've brought is consistent with the, uh, leadership uh, approach of uh, people like Oscar and Scott and Brett who are running the company. I mean, you're, you're no doubt familiar with the, um, the saying, never waste a crisis. Um, and obviously in communications, we tend to not think of it in those terms because our job is, of course, to alleviate the crisis. Um, but there's no doubt something to be said for um, experiencing it, or, or at least having the threat of real failure to lead a company to really um, embrace doing things differently. Um, yeah, I'm interested. You know, in, go ahead. I just one quick thought on that. You know, one of the ways that I've thought about you know this crisis um, for United that's really unique to us is depending on how you think about it. At the beginning of this crisis, sort of depending on how you measure, um, United was either third or fourth in the industry. And so, when you go through a crisis in which all of the assumptions are upended, when everything is totally disrupted, we've got a whole lot less to lose than our primary <laughs> competitors that had this. Yeah advantage so how do we make sure that when we come out of this crisis and you know hopefully we'll all be out of this crisis sooner than later but two years into it when we come out of this crisis which is something we're still aspiring to how do we make sure that we don't just come back the way we were when we entered it how do we you know again not this is a this there are tragedies upon tragedies that have been part of this global pandemic so I, I don't take that lightly in any, in any way. But how do we capitalize on this incredible disruption in our business to make some changes that assure that we emerge from it um, in a different form, in a different state, and with a different approach than we entered it? Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and that is something that, that has been foremost on the mind of uh, Scott and other leaders in the company, but also something I've been thinking about a lot, too. Mm -hmm. So... I want to shift gears a little bit to, um, you know, as, as a chief communications uh, leader, you know, you you are in many ways supporting and partnering with the company's chief executive. You've mentioned both Oscar Munez and Scott Kirby, the former and current CEOs at United. We've talked about President Obama, who you were press secretary for, and even before that, there was Tom Vilsack, you were communications director for, who's now you know secretary of agriculture in my home state of Iowa. He was governor way back when I used to actually live there, I think. Um, these are all very different leaders. So how do you, right, as the communications leader, how do you go with that like evolution and any advice you would give to people if you're gonna, if you have a new CEO coming in, 
like what would be the steps that you'd recommend in terms of how do they adapt or evolve or you know earn trust with that ceo yeah i I think that's a really good question paul I, i the I think the way that I think about this is particularly in the modern environment, and this is not particularly, this is not especially profound, but I I think it's true and an important thing not to lose sight of is there's just nothing more important in this, you know, disruptive uh, media environment in which we are so aggressively competing for people's attention and where we're entering, you know, the stage where there's so much skepticism. Nothing is more important than authenticity. Uh, And that is why my success as an advisor to each of those people that each of whom had a very different communication style was not for me to try to impose my preferences and instincts on them, but rather get them to, uh, to consider things that are outside of their own instincts. Hmm. Um, and to present new ideas, alternative approaches, not sort of pressing them to accept them, but pressing them to consider them uh, and to think about them. Now you have to pick your moments, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The best time to try to really make that strong case may not be um, five minutes before the president walks into the East Room for a news conference. (laughs) Uh, It may not be, um, you know, uh, the in the last 15 minutes of Q&A prep before the quarterly earnings call. <laughs> Picking your moments is really important. Um, but, but I think that's the thing at the end of the day is that also ended up being a really good way to build trust was it, it was clear to each of them, I hope, I think, that I wasn't trying to change them. In fact, that, I would, that it would be a bad thing if I did. But rather that what I wanted them to do is just to sort of think about some other approaches that they could then incorporate into um, a style and perspective that was unique to them. I think that's um, I think you started out saying this may not be profound, but I think that was actually pretty profound. And, you know, I can quote one of your former CEOs here. Oscar Muniz actually said in a statement specifically about you, Josh has thrived when the stakes are the highest and the margin for error is the smallest. And when we think about airlines, you know, people is life or death, right? Um, And we think about the last two years, I mean, the airline, the the company itself was in a life or death moment for the company. And before that, you know, the president of the United States, I mean, these are genuinely the highest stakes types of moments. So can you talk a little bit about when you're in really high pressure situations, you're in the moment, you know, like, what are the skill sets or the ways of thinking, in terms of making sure that you're not either overreacting or, or underreacting in the moment. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, when I was the, when I, when I served as the white house press secretary, it was, you know, when people would watch, you know, would watch it on TV, it would, the, the, the most common question I would get is, um, how do you stay calm and not just get so irritated or frustrated at the persistent repeated questions? And, some of it, and the answer then is is still true now. Is is some of it is just the way that I'm wired. Is that I, I I'm, you know, I'm just a lower key guy, um, and so it, I have no, I've not found it to be especially hard um, in those kinds of environments to um, keep my cool. But like everybody, 
um, in those high pressure moments, your brain starts moving really quickly. And what I found is um, recognizing when that happens and slowing your brain down. Um, and so one of the one of the things that I used to do when I did the daily briefing at the White House is I, you know, the press secretary's office is in the West Wing, and it's probably about 60 feet from there through a couple of doors to the podium in the briefing room that everybody recognizes with the White House logo behind you. And what I did, um, you know, there would, it would not uncommonly be a little bit of a frenzy in the last 15 minutes to make sure that I sort of prepped, at, you know, for all the last minute questions that may come up in the in the briefing. But what I would do is we'd always do a two-minute warning so the reporters would know to be in their seats. And we'd give the two-minute warning, and then I'd have everybody clear out of the office. And I would, you know, straighten my tie, make sure I had my notes in order. Um, and then I would very intentionally walk slowly from my office, step by step, methodically, into the briefing room. And by slowing my physical movements, it slowed down my brain too. And that idea of just slowing down all these sort of rapid thoughts that come into mind um, helped me think much more clearly, helped me keep my eyes on the priorities. Um, I think that's often the hardest thing in a crisis is the most um, urgent or emergent thing can sometimes be confused for the most important thing. Um, and really, uh, differentiating, but sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And being able to clearly assess um, what's most important is a really um, critical skill to making good decisions in the midst of a crisis. And it's amazing in that it does sound a little counterintuitive at first, because of course you want to consider all the possibilities and you want to think through all the angles and you have no time you know, you can picture the duck, you know, floating calmly on the surface with the, the feet, you know, you know, paddling crazy underneath. Um, yeah. And that's typically our brains that I love the visual and also the, the actual recommendation to our listeners of if you're walking into a big presentation, you're walking into a boardroom, you're walking into a pitch, slowing yourself down both mentally and physically helps you focus. It's really great advice. Yeah. Um, so you're now you're now in a position where you're you're able to be on the front foot a little bit more, right? We're not just dealing with crises. We're now on the front foot at United. And one of the things um, is it sounds to me like you're unveiling a pretty substantial DEI commitment. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about you know, what is that and um, the thought process behind it and maybe the, how communications have been involved in some of the decision-making? And Yeah, uh, at, the, at the end of January, uh, we will be doing the grand opening uh, of our, of United's Aviate Academy. This is a pilot training facility uh, that we purchased uh, in Goodyear, Arizona. United is the only major US airline that owns our own pilot training facility. And you know what we, one of the decisions that we made uh, and announced last year, and we made this decision sort of in the, in the depths of the COVID crisis, was that coming out of the COVID crisis, one of the things that we needed to do to really fulfill our potential as an airline, because of some of the strategic advantages we have where our hubs are, is our airline that we need to get bigger. We need to have more planes. We need to have bigger planes to provide better service to our customers and really capitalize on some of the strategic advantages that we have. And what that means is if when you get more planes, um, you need more pilots. Now, that comes at the same time that a lot of pilots, understandably, in the midst of the crisis, 
took uh, voluntary retirement. Um, and then the other challenge that we have in the industry is that there's a mandatory retirement age. And so when you combine those three factors together, the number of voluntary retirements that took place, the um, sort of the mandatory retirement age and our ambition to grow as an airline, we're under a ton of pressure to make sure we've got enough pilots to fly the airline that we want to build. And so one element of our strategy is to open up our own training academy and try to um, uh, and use that as a way to train pilots from the beginning of their career in the United in the United Way. We've got world world class training and safety standards. There are a bunch of customer service standards that we put in place for pilots as well. Uh, and then obviously all the kinds of technical skills that we want pilots to to have. Now there's one, but we went a step further, um, and we said, you know, there's something else that we need to address here, which is that if you take a look at the percentage of uh, people of color who choose a career as a professional uh, commercial aviation pilot, the numbers are astonishingly low. United actually has the highest, as I recall, um, United has the highest percentage of uh, people of color who serve as, as airline pilots. And that percentage is in the single digits. It's wow. astounding. Wow. And so we made a commitment that our Aviate Academy in Arizona that um, over the next um, 10 years, uh, or by the end of the decade, um, we are hoping to train 5,000 pilots, so about, about 500 pilots a year. And we made a commitment that half of the students who matriculate to the academy will be women or people of color. That and is a big difference from single digits to half. It, it, it can have a profound change, not just on our company, but on the industry. And look, this isn't, this isn't just about charity. Like the thing we have to recognize is um, American Airlines, Delta Airlines, Southwest Airlines, they're also trying to recruit pilots too for the same reasons that we are. So the competition for good pilot talent is as, is as competitive as it's ever been. And if our response to that is to just keep going to the same places um, and trying to re recruit the same kind of people, um, that's not really a likely to be a successful strategy to draw more. So we need to sort of expand the scope and sort of think a little bit about how can we get people who may not have previously considered a career as, as a commercial airline pilot to do so. And to think about all of the, you know, the incredible pay and benefits, the union protections, the opportunity to see the world. This is an incredible career for people. Let's go invite people who may not have considered that career in the past uh, to consider that career. And so rather than just going to a place like North Dakota State, which has an extraordinary world-class uh, aviation training program for aspiring pilots, that's a good place to go and recruit. We're going to do that and we're going to get lots of really good pilots from there. But why don't we also go to a place like Florida A&M that's got an outstanding engineering program where you may have students there who are, you know, who basically are all um, African-American who have good solid engineering school skills, um, have really good skills as students and may not have considered a career as a pilot. Um, why don't we try to recruit them, put them into the Aviate Academy and give them the opportunity to pursue a career that is very lucrative, that can be very rewarding, um, but that they may not have ever considered before. That is a way not for us to just do the right thing in terms of diversifying economic opportunity in this country. It also is an opportunity for us to meet this urgent existential challenge when it comes to recruiting enough pilots. Well, it's, that's what makes it so genuine. You used the authentic word earlier, right, that this is something that it's a business imperative and you're addressing it um, through a DEI lens. You know, it's, it's, this is not 
uh, you know, sort of just uh, performative, right? It's for performance instead of being performative. Yeah, well um, said. And obviously, you know, representation matters, right? And and so the more young children of color seeing pilots that that they look at and they think, you know what, that could be me when I grow up. It will have an absolute domino effect on the industry. So it's really very exciting. And then one final question for you is as we think about that and we think about younger people looking up to what they see and what they aspire to, um, there's no doubt a lot of people in this industry that would aspire to have a career like yours. Um, So I guess my question is, what is your advice for them in terms of mindsets that maybe they should embrace or skills you think they should pursue? Yeah. Um, so uh, two things come to mind. The, f- the first is um, especially early in your career, it's important to work for causes or people or institutions that you genuinely believe in or that you're genuinely interested in or both. That particularly early in your career, you don't, you shouldn't have to make the kinds of sacrifices where you're just like, well, at least it's a paycheck. Um, That is not likely to sort of get people down the right path. Um, So really thinking about, you know, what are the things that I find genuinely intellectually interesting? What do I want to learn about? What are the industries that I think are fascinating? Or, you know, given my political background and my bias, who are the who are the candidates out there that I think are doing really interesting work that are fighting for the kinds of things that I genuinely believe in? So that'd be the first thing. Go work someplace that you're interested in or that you believe in or better yet, both. The second thing is for all of the significant um, advances in technology, um, we are still nowhere close to um, replacing the ability of a human being to write really well. There is just no substitute for that. And so young people who think about a career in communications, really focusing on your writing skills. So choosing courses in college where you're going to be asked to do a lot of writing, looking for opportunities earlier in your career where you can be responsible for writing or drafting things. Um, And then even better, if you can have if you have an opportunity to work for somebody who you respect as a writer. Um, and, and you have a reporting relationship where you're taking a first draft and then you're watching that person edit your work. That is an incredible way to learn. And there's just there's no shortcut for that. Um, and that is uh, you know, going in and doing it uh, every day and writing every day is um, a skill that will never go out of style. I, I'll tell you that you know, I'm working at United at United Airlines Um if there's somebody that can show me that they're a really good writer, we are going to find a place for them on our team. Uh, that is an incredibly valuable skill. Um, and so having that credential, uh, having that skill and keeping it sharp um, is a great way for you to not just find opportunities early in your career, but to ensure that you've got growth opportunities over the course of your career, because it's never going to go out of stuff. That's great advice. And it actually, it's funny, it dovetails nicely with advice I give when people ask a similar question here, like interns when they ask, as I say, there's a difference between baseline proactivity, which is sort of saying like, I have time, is there something I can do? And intentional proactivity, which is seeing that actually your boss is supposed to be the one writing something and saying, can I take a first draft on that? 
to your point, that's when you're going to learn. That's when they're going to be able to say, here's how I would have written this differently. And you get real hands-on learning. But writing, I mean, people don't talk enough about it, I feel like. It's like we're not talking about press releases. We're talking about everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's it just, great that, advice. Thank you, John. Yeah, that, that ability to put down on paper and do it quickly and clearly and persuasively is just uh, a hugely important skill. And you know, for all of the advances in technology, there's nothing in technology that replaces the ability to do that. Totally agree. Josh, thank you so much. You've been generous with your time and your insights. It's really been great hearing from you. I know that people are going to be very excited about this. So um, thank you. And um, we look forward to hearing what everybody has to say about it. Uh, me too, Paul. Thanks for the opportunity today. It's good to see you. Likewise. All right. As always, here are some key learnings from this conversation with Josh Ernest. Number one, hire wartime communications leaders or become one. When Josh made the pivot in his career from politics after being press secretary to the Obama administration to the corporate side, most brand executives he met with questioned whether his political experience would be relevant in their industry. This proved to be short-sighted. United, who was facing a communications challenge at the time, knew that they needed to think differently if they were going to correct course. The combination of Josh's outside perspective and his proven track record of operating rationally under pressure, there's arguably no higher pressure comms job than being a press secretary, both of these things turned out to be a killer combination and made his time at United extremely productive thus far. Number two, slow your body and your brain will follow. Josh's former CEO publicly praised how well he's able to operate under extreme amounts of pressure. Josh attributed this to having both a generally low-key attitude and making a conscious effort to slow his body down when the stakes are really high. Slowing the body down, he learned, slows the mind down, allowing you to think rationally and separate the urgent from the important and prioritize accordingly. He cites this as a really critical skill for making good decisions in the midst of a crisis. Number three, learn to write. Of the many pieces of advice Josh offers to young aspiring comms leaders, at the top of his list is learning how to write well. Writing is a skill that cannot be replaced by bots no matter how good their algorithms get, and therefore is a skill that will always be needed and always be in demand in communications. Anyway, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Frictionless Marketing, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thanks again for listening to Frictionless Marketing. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.